The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. actually that Henry VI in this book is your villain as opposed to yeah. Richard III. It's it's Henry VI that you hold responsible ultimately for, for everything that transpires. Yeah, in insofar as you can, you know, insofar as you can heap the blame on one person, which as historians we know is great practice. But yeah, if you're gonna pick a villain, it's Henry VI. That was Susanna Lipscomb interviewing Dan Jones about the Wars of the Roses. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week we're joined by Dan Jones, a historian and writer who specialises in the late medieval period. His latest book is a new history of the Wars of the Roses period, entitled The Hollow Crown. And our interview with Dan is a little different from our usual format, as putting the questions is another historian, Susanna Lipscomb, who herself is an expert on the Tudors. Dan and Susanna met up in her office at the New College of the Humanities, and this is what they had to say. So... Dan, your latest book is called The Hollow Crown, The Wars of the Roses and the Rise of the Tudors. And it seems to me a touch unfair that you now have expertise ranging from the 12th to the 16th century. It feels um, that, uh, you know, one can come to you for pretty much anything to do with the medieval period. Um, But one of the things you're doing in this um, new book is that you're trying to challenge the story that has been inherited down the centuries about the Wars of the Roses. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think when I started writing, or when anyone starts reading or writing about the Wars of the Roses, you inevitably come up against a sort of fixed notion of what these wars were and when they took place. Um, so usually they're dated from sort of 1450, 1453, 1455, one of those, uh, to 1485 with the Battle of Bosworth as a finishing point. Or if people want to be kind of daring, they say, ah, oh, no, they went, actually went on to 1487 with the Battle of Stoke. Um, and it seemed to me when I was started work on this that on both ends, both sort of um, temporal bookends, you know, we were starting in the wrong place. Earlier, you know, when, when you look at the beginning of the Wars of the Roses, very obviously this period of sort of, of turmoil and violence and political upheaval didn't just sort of happen in the 1450s. There's, there's some sort of build-up. 
and for reasons we'll probably discuss in a minute, I, I felt it was much better and, and would make more sense if you started in 1420, because that, that puts everything into context and, and sort of joins it up, if you like, with the politics of the end of the 14th century and of the Hundred Years' War, which you can't really begin to understand the Wars of the Roses without going into. And then at the other end, well, we all know wars stop, periods of open warfare come to an end, but it things aren't neat like that in history. And it's, it's silly to suggest that all of the issues connected with the Wars of the Roses just suddenly stop with either the Battle of Bosworth or with the Battle of Stoke. And I wanted to try and write about how the, the, the afterlife of the Wars of the Roses affected that early Tudor period. Now, I'm not a Tudor specialist, but um, I think none of us would agree it's very helpful to just have these sort of big divisions between periods. You know, you're a 16th century person, I'm a 15th century person, and here's the boundary, and let's not cross it, you know. I think, so So in this book, we, you know, the story actually really goes up to the 1590s and Shakespeare developing the idea of the Wars of the Roses um, or, or crystallising it through these, these sort of great plays. So I wanted to connect different periods of history, and I just wanted to put historically put the Wars of the Roses in their proper context from, from both afterwards and from before. And you've got these key moments in the 16th century with the, the death of the, the last uh, White Rose, 1525, and mm. as you begin your book with the death of um, Margaret... Margaret Paul. Um, Paul, yes, Countess of Salisbury, 1541, which, which is a, a typically entertaining way to start with this sort of horrific Not for Margaret story. Paul. Poor old Margaret Paul, <laughs> very entertained. Entertaining yeah. read, very yeah, horrific you. story. But the... So that you, these are the sort of tendrils of the, the Wars of the Roses that you see stretching up into the Tudor period. But, but you are, nevertheless, also, as well as changing the kind of temporal boundaries, you're also thinking about the story that's been told about the Wars of the Roses being a sort of reaction. In fact, you put this in the epilogue, don't you? That it's the, the idea that the crown has been thrown into disarray by the deposition of Richard II in 1399, and that then afterwards there's this sort of battle between these two warring clans um, that's, you know, because they've deposed the rightful king and a kind of divine punishment, and then eventually it's all sorted out when you get Henry Tudor coming to unite the two families. And that also, that narrative is also challenged by your book as being too simplistic and just not accurate. Well, it's pro this is a, a problem with historical labels, most of which, when you start delving into them, oversimplify but when we talk about the wars of the roses um even that that piece of language that that um that visual idea of red versus white york versus lancaster all brought together and solved by the tudors you know like kind of like a, a football match where they all swap shirts and hug at the end right <laughs> that obviously is far too simplistic um, so, yeah, so what I've tried to do in the book is, is challenge it and, and say, look, there are periods at which this really complex and difficult conflict can be explained in terms of dynastic um, tension between two rival factions for the, for the throne. But there aren't. These, these periods are, are small. It's a minority of the time. That's what this, this conflict is about. And certainly the accession of the Tudors didn't just bring it to an end. But uh, well, the sort of great... Uh, achievement of the Tudors, if you like, or of the, Henry the Seventh. Certainly, um, the great achievement is to come up with this very simple way of explaining all the complex politics of the 15th century in terms of, okay, there were these guys and they hated these guys and they had a fight and then it all got fixed in the end and it's sort of Romeo and Juliet with a happy ending. And it survived. 
It's completely survived. If you go out in the street and say, wars of the roses, what they're about, people say, oh, Lan you know, if they know. They say, Lancaster versus York, red versus white. That's what underpins, let's say, the white, you know, in, in popular culture, the white queen, Game of Thrones, based on the wars of the roses. Um, it's a very seductive and um, easy way to understand the 15th century, but it's holy, well, it's holy, but it's almost wholly false. It doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. And yet there is this, this beautiful and fascinating period in the 16th century when the idea is developed. And as I said earlier, when you get to the 1590s, it's sort of crystallised in, in, um, in Shakespeare's plays. You know, um, I can't remember if I put this in the book, I hope it is. If you imagine going to see Henry VI Part One in the 1590s, you did put it in the book. I did put it in the book. Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, it shows you've read it, uh, no, right? If you if you're standing in the in the theatre, you know the Rose Theatre, aptly named, down in Southwark in the 1590s, watching Henry VI Part One, and you see this scene where they're plucking uh, red and white roses from the rose bush to demonstrate um, their allegiances in these wars. You wouldn't even, in the 1590s, have to hear what was being said. You could, you could sort of take a look. Oh, yeah, I know what this is about. That's the, that's the 15th century. It was those red and white people having a fight. You know, it, it's, a sort of, it's a visual trope. It's a brilliant metaphor. Unfortunately, it's selling something of a lie. And yet, even though you're arguing that the Wars of the Roses is being used as this trope by the end of the 16th century... Hmm. In terms of terminology, you said that this is something that really is only used from the 19th century. Well, it's funny, the exact phrase, so far as we can see, the Wars of the Roses, doesn't appear, the, the, the clever people of the Oxford English Dictionary certainly don't believe it, it appears before the 19th century. But the, the image is there virtually from, what well, is there from the 1480s? It's there in the Tudor Rose, this red and white rose. Uh, that's, that's supposed to show York, you know, York and Lancaster united. It's there in um, the frontispieces of, of books in the Royal Library. It's, it's there at Elizabeth's first coronation. You know, she turns the corner on Fenchurch Street in her procession from the Tower to Westminster during her coronation. And the first pageant she sees, a rose bush with the red and white roses united, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and, and the rest of the Tudors as, um, as the kind of... Uh, the plaster that fixed the wounds of the, of the 15th century. So the idea is there, the phrase, the walls of the roses, is much later. So this is the, that's a sort of a Tudor um, idea, really, as much as anything else. I mean, you, you talk about Edward IV being the white rose, but you talk about only being able to call them the Lancastrians from 1460. So the sense, you, you know, that, that whilst this is an idea imposed on it by the Tudors because it works for them, mm. You, it, you're not, you don't think it's accurate necessarily to the, the period before. And another phrase that, that has been used in recent times that you don't mention at all, uh, and presumably there's a reason for that, is um, Cousins' War. Oh, my God, the Cousins' War. I just can't... I just don't know where this phrase, the Cousins' War, has come from. I've, I've no clue. Uh, I couldn't find it. I asked around a whole bunch of... Um, Professors at uh, Cambridge, uh, think old, I mean, I asked a lot of academics, where does the term <laughs> the Cousins' War come from? And no one said no, never encountered it. Never encountered it. So I don't know where the hell this. this I'm, I'm sure it works very well in, in fiction. It's a nice sort of um, romantic kind of way of describing the period. But I mean, no, just what is the Cousins' War? No clue.
It's even falser than the Wars of the Roses, which takes some doing. It is an extraordinary period you're describing, though. I was struck by some of the sort of firsts that you mentioned, that you mentioned Edward IV as the first English king to marry a subject for four centuries, uh, that... that uh, Elizabeth of York was the first princess to have been born to a reigning queen for a hundred years. The mm. King of England slain in battle, obviously Richard III, mm. first since Harold. The, 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 you know, there's this, this sense this is a, an extraordinary period. And, I, and you have a Milanese ambassador describing the ever-changing nature of events and having, even having to write about them being like torture. Did you find the same? Um, yes, that's a, lo- that's a lovely quote, isn't it? He, this, uh, this ambassador is just, he's sort of angry that he has to try and describe events in England for, um, to send his dispatches back to Italy because it's just, nothing makes any sense and it's just far too difficult to, to even begin to sum up. Did I find it difficult to write about? There are some, and this will slight, sound slightly fatuous, but it's not supposed to be. There are some very basic problems in writing you know, a quote-unquote popular history of the Wars of the Roses. And one of them is that everyone's called the same thing. No, genuinely, there are too many Prince Edwards. There are too many Elizabeths. There are a lot of Prince Edwards or Princes of Wales. Many of them are alive at the same time. Uh, it's, there's a tangled family tree which needs to be understood to some degree to, to begin to kind of comprehend uh, basically who's who there are lots of Dukes of Somerset who all die and are all called the same thing and uh, are also irritatingly numbered um, by two different systems the first Duke of Somerset could refer to two different people because right? that's a headache mm. that's, a, that's a basic headache um, the politics you're becoming slightly more serious the politics of the 15th century are very complex and draw in lots of different strands um, in a way that the politics of the 14th century, for example, don't. I'm not sure if the 16th century is quite as tangled. I mean, the, relig- the wars of religion and, you know, the, the, the Reformation, I suppose, makes it so. But the 15th century is a, is a peculiarly difficult time to get your head around. That said, I, d- I did really enjoy writing about it, partly because it's a challenge, and I like a challenge, and partly because it's, it's incredibly rich in historical drama as much as anything else. You know, these epic kind of um, shifts in power and the, the way everything is just sort of turned upside down. The rules are, are all broken all at once. Um, and what you, you see are people just trying to make sense of their world on the hoof. I think that's basically um, what makes the period so confusing and so fascinating is that you're looking at a time when yeah, all, the work, all the rules were broken. All bets were off, you know. Um, kill a king. Take the throne. Depose that king. Claim the throne in battle. You know, marry a subject. All, all these things that just haven't happened for so long uh, all suddenly happen altogether. So, so, but what that gives you as a, as a writer is a, just this wealth of material for, um, for historical storytelling. And... Um- that is exactly what you do. One of the things I'm struck by, it, it seems to me that you're carving out this particular way of writing history um, that has you know, long antecedents, but is, is, is not um, antecedents, but is not something that people, a lot of people are doing today, which is that you write narrative history, and you write um, narrative history in a way that is uh, 
particularly engaging. Um, you know, it, you describe war very vividly, which obviously helps when you're writing about the Wars of the Roses. Um, so, you know, for example, one always knows the weather uh, <laughs> at a particular battle. Um, uh, you, um, you create... Um, you set scenes, so I, I was struck at the beginning of each chapter, there's a particularly lovely one where you're talking about uh, Thomas Curver, is it, who's um, yeah. one of these people who's uh, accused of treason, and there's, you have this description of him being, and I'm just finding the page here, of him being dragged painfully along the ground, each stone rut and pothole in the road, scraping against his body and head in this bloodying fashion, he was hauled around another public circuit. Or, you know, when you're scene setting, um, you don't just say there's a castle at Fotheringhay, you talk about it being a stunning palatial fortress on the banks of this river. So there's very, it's very visual in the language that you use. I particularly liked you saying, you know, things like, he strained every fibre of his formidable being, or you talk about mm. no arbitrary clutch of estates. Do you see yourself as a storyteller? Yeah, abso absolutely. Is absolutely. that the role of a historian, do you think? Um, if, I don't think you, it's... it's I wouldn't be so glib as to say there's one role of a historian because the business of being a historian encompasses many different roles. But for me, what I'm doing and what I've done with, with this book and what I was, I was getting towards, and I think ended up getting towards with the Plantagenets, which came before it, and which these two are sort of companion volumes, really, is to get back to narrative history. I mean, it's been disdained and sort of sneered at from this bizarre way for a long time, right? Which is, is totally confusing to me. I want as many people to read about the Middle Ages as possible. There have been some wonderful writers in the, um, in the period you study, in, in the 16th century, and I was taught by one of them, David Starkey, who wrote serious, brilliant, academic, popular narrative history, and that wasn't an oxymoron didn't find the contradictions. It's, and it, you've alluded to, you alluded to it in your question, which is that this is, this is in, for want of a better term, history's DNA. Um, look at the great writers of the sort of 18th, 19th century. How did they write history? Narrative history. Right? Telling these, these long, sort of epic, sweeping stories. They don't have to be over a long time period. It could be over a short period. My first book was about the Peasants' Revolt, and I did, took the same sort of approach to it then. Um, but the, what I'm trying to do in writing history is, is, is reach a, um, a broad audience. Now, I've studied um, with some of the best medievalists in the world. Um, these books are underpinned by proper serious historical research. They're not invented, right? They're, they're serious history books. But I think if you're going to touch people and, and, and get people interested in a period like the Middle Ages, which has, until very recently, not been in vogue, you need to appeal to how people uh, like to absorb their information. It is no coincidence that historical fiction outsells history by, I even know what the, the ratio is, but a lot. Why? Because these are, people like stories. It's, it's a basic human way of absorbing information. Um, and uh, I think if you, you can frame history with some of the, uh, the familiar sort of tropes and techniques of story, of Storytelling. I'm avoiding the word fiction because that would imply that some of this is made up, which it absolutely is not. Uh, but a basic storytelling, then people will, will gravitate towards those books. And I mean, I have a, a basic interest in people buying and reading my books, but I also think it's important for engaging people in history. That's the role of a public historian.
The counter argument mm -hmm. would be that you're presenting uh, an interpretation, sometimes a quite contested material, the whole discussion about, um, you know, one of the uh, one of the Suffolk's William de la Pole, Duke of mm -hmm. Suffolk, and his uh, as chief minister to the infant Henry the the sixth, and how much he was to blame for what went wrong. And you're giving a perspective on that, and we've already talked about your argument more generally. But the historiography doesn't make it into your text, although your endnotes do show you're working. So, what would be your response to someone saying, "Well, why do you disguise it so much?" I'm not disguising anything. I mean, as you as you say, the um, set out in the endnotes. Uh, for this book are the workings, if you like, you know, the um, the sources for the historical debate that goes on about someone like um, like Suffolk, the court of Henry VI, about Richard III, who, as we all know, is a very contentious um, figure. But look, if you're, if you're writing this kind of narrative history, um, you break the flow badly when you go into historiography and you turn... I believe you turn readers off. Now, that's not to treat readers um, like fools. In fact, it's to credit them with the intelligence to accept when they open a work of history that you, as a historian, have digested, read, absorbed, understood, uh, and decided your, your interpretation of what happened. And that may differ from someone else's. If they want to go follow it up, the means are there. Um, but I, I sort of think that uh, without sounding too grand, as the historian, it's your job to make these decisions and then tell the story um, as you think best. That's that's what I, you know, when I pick up a history book, that's what I want to believe. I want to believe that this person has done the work and worked it out. It's just sort of follow me, come with me, and let me tell you this story. That's very interesting, and and it's not. I mean, I don't mean to apply at all mm -hmm. that that these are not bristling with research because, of course, they are, and there, you know, there are some wonderful moments of detail. I liked when you talked about the aspect of the coronation that might lead to head lice or Henry VI hating nakedness and having a serious yes. reaction to it. But also, I, I, this, there are other bits in it where I thought you really... Um, this shows tremendous amounts of research for you to get a paragraph. So yeah. when you talk about the library of Catherine de la Pole, who's the abbess of Reading, is it? Barking? Uh, Barking, in essence. And, and you, you talk about what existed in her library because the young Edmund and Jasper Tudor were there and might have encountered them. I was thinking, what were your sources for this? I mean, what, and, and generally speaking, what sorts of sources were you using drawing? Well, in that particular instance, which is, um, which is in the uh, 1430s, when Jasper and Edmund Tudor, children of Owen Tudor and Catherine de Valois, widow of Henry V, Okay, so one of Edmund Tudor, Henry the Henry the Seventh's father. When they're children, they're sent off to uh, Barking Abbey under the supervision of Catherine de la Pole, abbess at Barking Abbey. It's it's like a sort of finishing school for posh kids, right? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Well, look down in Barking in Essex. If you drive there, are the remains of the abbey where there is this the most wonderful um, historically reconstructed scale model of what the abbey looked like during this exact period. And there's an absolutely wonderful library, which is obviously had masses of money pumped into it, full of records about Barking Abbey over the ages. Um, there's been some very interesting work done. There's been a couple of, uh, I think it's an MPhil thesis, there might even be a PhD thesis, about Barking Abbey. Um, there's tons of material about that. The MPhil thesis is unpublished and I had to get it from the States, I think. But, you know, someone sat down and, and done all this 
all this work on Barking Abbey. Yeah, no, that, so that, God, that was about, that was probably, strangely, the most labour-intensive bit of the book that you've alighted upon, this period in Jasper and, and Tudor's life. Um, because they almost disappeared for about 10 years. Mm. Oh, God, I looked everywhere to find out. You know, down in the National Archives, going through all the government records, trying to track down exactly where they could have been, might have been, you know, back in the original sources, and they, they've just disappeared. So, to the best of our knowledge, they're in Barking Abbey. So, when you're trying to tell the story, you've got to then start filling in whatever pieces you can of this jigsaw in which most of the pieces are missing. And that involves going, okay, well, if we don't know anything particularly about Jasper and Edmund Tudor, let's see what we do know about where they were living for this period and let's start to build up at least that amount of the picture um, because well, as you know as a historian that's that's your limit that's the as far as you can get yeah no i thought it was a great piece of research just reading i thought there's a lot behind this paragraph <laughs> I'm, glad so, you, yeah. I'm glad you noticed <laughs> yeah. it was um yeah seeing as we've mentioned edmund and jasper tudor and mm -hmm. the, the, uh, catherine de la Polk, one of the things I was really struck by, and you reading this, is just how blooming young everybody is. I mean, you've got just a, a couple of examples, you know, Catherine de Valois is dead by the age of 35, mm -hmm. obviously Henry V dies very young as well, and, and obviously <laughs> Henry VI is an infant when he becomes king. Mm -hmm. When Edward IV becomes king, he's 18 years old, and his power is completely established by the age of 29, and then he's dead by 41. The, the abbess of Barking, we just mentioned Catherine de la Pole, becomes abbess, you say, at 22 or 23. Mm -hmm. um, Richard III's wife, Anne Neville's dead by 28. Perkin Warbeck later is, you know, coming to attention at the age of 17. And I wondered to what extent you thought that the extreme youth of this period, uh, of, the people, of the people acting in this period, affected that world and the politics of the world. Was it more hot-headed, perhaps, as a result? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it's almost, it's sort of axiomatic now to say that in the past people grew up faster and that we're a sort of infantilised society today and looking back on, um, you know, uh, people we now, you know, adulthood sort of begins in your early 30s or, you know, not at all. Um, whereas, <laughs> uh, whereas a long time ago it began much earlier and you were thrust at looking, I mean, Henry V fighting the Battle of Shrewsbury in his teens, in his mid-teens, right? Uh, same uh, an early period of the Black Prince um, at Cressy. So people are expected to come to adulthood much earlier. Um, but you, you know, you've hit an interesting point with does this youth affect politics? And and one of the examples I think you mentioned was Edward the Fourth, you know, king at eighteen. And people have really puzzled about Edward the Fourth's first reign or the first half of his reign um, in the fourteen sixties, and particularly this. Um, story, you know, the, the puzzle of the Woodville marriage. Why do it? So it causes so many problems, short term and long term. And when I was working on that period of the book, um, I was actually, I talked to Helen Castor quite a lot about this, who's, who's obviously a 15th century expert, and it was, it was her who put the seed in my mind. Think about how young they all are. Right, the, the turnover in the, in the late 1450s is enormous of older politicians, in the 1440s as well. You've just got a sort of dying off or slaughtering in the early battles of the, of the wars. And you end up around Edward's coronation with basically everyone involved being really, really young. And you look at Edward himself. Uh, he's never seen anyone in his life govern England competently. 
Same is true of Henry VI, of course. They work out differently. Uh, the people around him are generally pretty young as well, and it's sort of like, and I've used this phrase before, it's like they're writing new rules of, of how things are going to work. You know, there's, no, there's not many people around saying to... Well, there are people around saying to Edward IV, you should, you should marry a foreign princess, but it's like... It's sort of like this, this fresh start, this, this new generation come into power in the 1460s and decide to do things very, very differently. Um, and I, when I discuss the Woodville marriage, that's, that's a part of the argument in the book, is that they're kind of working out political problems that, uh, that are their generations to kind of take on and, and try and understand. I suppose it's probably the same as, you know, if you look at uh, when Henry VIII comes to the throne, you know, he was 17, mm -hmm. 17 when he comes, when he takes the throne. Um, and you get something of the same then, right? You know, a new sort of generation are eating their way into power. It's, you've, got a, you've got a much more so than before. So, yeah, I do think the sort of youth of everybody, um, in general, but very particularly in the early 1460s, 40, let's say 1460 to 1464-ish, um, has a really profound effect on, on how politics operates in the period, yeah. But as you've mentioned the Woodville about marriage, mm. one of the conclusions one might draw from their youth is you might say, well, he's obviously just totally in lust with this um, woman, but you actually come to a conclusion to, to suggest that it's not just about Edward IV falling in love with Elizabeth Woodville, that there's more to it than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and without actually having to, to sort of grub around and find a, a, a brilliant revelatory new document about the marriage, which I didn't, I don't think, you, you know, you can look at the Woodville marriage and as, all you've got to do is line everything up in order and look at what was happening at the time of the Woodville marriage. At the time of at the time that Edward, I'm not going to get too bogged down in it, but at the time that Edward IV married Elizabeth Woodville, he was in a bit of a fix because he's taken the throne of Henry VI, but you have a very sort of badly divided and still unstable and settled kingdom, in which lots of the allies of Queen Margaret, let's call them Lancastrians, uh, there remains a sort of rump of uh, Lancastrian dissent, mainly in the north. And Edward's been doing everything he can to reach out to them, because one of the great things that Edward IV really understood was you don't, you don't just crush your enemies. It's a sort of timeless political lesson, right? You know, you have to talk to your enemies. You have to reconcile. You can't just try and crush them. Uh, he's reaching out across that divide to his former enemies, and he's, he's trying it wherever he can. And one of the big ones is, is Somerset, who he's trying to bring into the fold, and Somerset just doesn't really have any of it, just buggers off and, uh, and goes back to, you know, to his, his sort of alliance with Margaret. One of the families that Edward sort of lines up is um, the Woodvilles. These are Lancastrians. In fact, he knows the Woodvilles very well because they've been out, when he's out in Calais, you know, in the late 50s with, with Warwick, they've captured some boats and they've captured a couple of the Woodvilles and, and they've sort of berated them for being kind of poxy little Lancastrians, you know, of no great uh, nobility. Uh, but he's kind of desperate in the 1460s. He's reaching out wherever he can. So, OK, one strand of the Woodville marriage is, it makes sense, it's, it's an easy way to reach across Lancastrian Divide and bring a family into, into the fold. Um, but there's another strand to all this as well, which is that uh, Warwick the Kingmaker, um, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, uh, has been getting, let's say, a little bit uppity 
and has been trying to foist a foreign marriage on Edward in a way that's symptomatic of his um, desire to pull all the strings of government because he helped put Edward on the throne. Uh, and so it's quite nice for Edward to sort of give one in the eye to Warwick in, in any way he can and do something sort of slightly unexpected. And probably a third strand of that is there's this sort of older bird that Edward fancies, right? You know, she's quite sexy. Well, and these things all line up. And, and you can understand, if you read it in the right direction, that in Edward's mind, three rights here, what's not to like? Let's go for it. Um, looking back on it, it's a total disaster. But of course, you know, Edward's not blessed with, the, um, with hindsight in that exact moment. Oh, which, I'm sorry, there's another strand, which is that it, this marriage falls pretty much directly in between two more battles, um, Hedgemore and Hexham. Uh, at a moment of real crisis at which at any point he can be deposed on the throne. So decision-making becomes critical fast and not necessarily very well thought through. Um, and so there, what, what are we saying here? We're saying that there are political elements to this marriage, to the domestic political elements. There are some foreign political elements to this marriage. There are personal elements between Edward and Warwick, which, which is where the personal political um, crossover, and he's trying to put Warwick back in his box. It's probably that, yeah, a young man who fancies an older lady. She's only four years older than him. Exactly right. she, still, she still counts. So, you know, the arguments over the Woodwell marriage tend to break, break people tend to, tend to go one of two ways. It was a political decision or it was a romantic decision. Well, we know that life isn't like that. Lots of factors in, uh, are bound up in every decision we make, and people make decisions with partial knowledge and no um, hindsight. And that is what I've tried to explain. I said I was going to give you a short answer, and I've given you probably the long version there. There is a longer version, but we've run out of time. <laughs> One of the key themes of the book seems to me to be about uh, the nature and functions and failure of kingship. And I suppose, could you sort of give some thoughts on what constituted success as a medieval king. Yeah, so there's the nature of, if, there's one, if there's one theme that runs under the Plantagenets and the Hollow Crown, you know, this, this, sort of, this whole history of the Middle Ages, which this book sort of completes, it is the idea of kingship. What is a king? What is a king expected to do? How is a king restrained? Or, more difficult question, which is the question that arises with Henry VI, how is a king to be compelled to govern if he doesn't want to? You never get to the bottom of that. So yeah, kingship is, a, a, is the basic theme. What are the expectations of a king? Um, and how do you, you mould them without, uh, without taking away the essence of what a king is supposed to be? And I promise this will be the short answer. What you want from a king in the Middle Ages are two conflicting things. Firstly, you want him to be the source of universal and, in a sense, unfettered power. The power to lead, the power to make decisions, the power to settle arguments between the great people of the realm, uh, this, um, the ability to give personal direction to government, to the realm, to foreign policy, whatever. That's essential. And, whereas, and when, what, what happens whenever you, you start to uh, restrain a king from being able to do those things, you big problems, big problems. This is what you see throughout the whole of the Middle Ages. On the other hand, 
that relies, for that to work successfully, it relies almost entirely on the personality of the king. And that king uh, not being unfit to do the job, whether he's too weak or, t- or, uh, or tyrannically inclined. This is, the, this is the, the question that underlines, for example, Magna Carta. We want the king to have all this power, we want the king to, to, um, to be a source of universal authority, but what happens when somebody like King John, uh, or you know, another king, Edward II is a good example, Richard II is a good example, what happens when this person, by the, the total lottery of, of uh, inheritance, uh, that is the monarchy, becomes king? You've just got a real problem. What do you do to them? Uh, you have to try and restrain them in some way that uh, that compels that forces them to govern uh, properly, fairly, um, equitably, sensibly. So that's that's the tension. That's that's one of the tensions. That's the tension that ran all the way through the, my my book, the Plantagenets. That was the question. You know, the question brought up by Magna Carta: How do you how do you restrain a king? In the 15th century, or certainly that part of it which is dominated by, by the sort of inept reign of, of Henry VI, the question is flipped on its head. What do you do when you have a king who is completely useless and inane and inert and sometimes mad to the point of catatonia? What do you do when you have a king who just doesn't seem to want to govern? There's no point in restraining him because you want more from him. He's not a tyrant. You can't depose him and say you've, you know, you, you've, uh, you've broken the sort of pact not to abuse your power and not to, not to tyrannise um, your people and, and turn the, the power of kingship against your own people. What do you do? And that, that's, the tor- that's the question that tortures uh, England's politicians and the great families and the, the people of England for more or less 30 years under Henry VI. Much more difficult question to answer and they never find an answer. In fact, it seems actually that Henry VI in this book is your villain as opposed to yeah. Richard III. It's, it's Henry VI that you hold responsible ultimately for, for everything that transpires. Yeah, in, insofar, as you can, you know, insofar as you can heap the blame on one person, which as historians we know is, is not great practice. But yeah, if you're going to pick a villain, it's Henry VI. It's the sort of... It's the docile, meek... Um, Probably seems quite nice, you know, sort of pleasant, sort of amiable person who is completely and utterly unsuited to this role in which he is almost, to which he has almost literally been born. And well, you have these moments where you describe him during battle sitting under a tree singing and laughing to himself. Yeah, isn't that just, isn't that a tragic image? Um, a king for whom the world just sort of happens around him and... Uh, and for that king to have come from Henry V, the, the exact opposite. The exact opposite. One of the, the, the reasons I, I wanted to start this book in 1420 with the marriage of Henry V to Catherine de Valois, Treaty of Troyes, the high point of medieval kingship, as defined by go be up the French and govern competently at home. Henry V is the man, he's the greatest of them all. And, you know, who, who takes the world and moulds it to what he wants. And then you get Henry VI, who, who it, it couldn't, it's like the photographic negative. It's just a man for whom the world revolves around him. Uh, he either doesn't want to or can't impose himself on it. And as life goes on, um, retreats further and further and further until he's, he's sort of 
seems at points late in his life like he literally just wants to crawl into his tomb and die because this and it's it's a tragic story but uh he's also by he wouldn't say no fault of his own really but it is it is his fault this long period in which uh in which henry is the king of england erodes and rots basically the whole of the english polity until when you get to the 1460s the whole thing just collapses it's like a house in which uh, the foundations have just got damper and damper and wetter and wetter and more and more rotten and eventually boom just whole thing falls to bits and it's such a shame isn't it because if it, if it had skipped a generation it looks like his son might have been much more in the mould of mm. of Henry V but it just so happens that the focus for these 50 years or is on Henry VI also I mean to what extent was it important to look like a king is the problem that Henry VI as well as being um, you know, indecisive and at times very mentally ill also just doesn't look the part whereas someone like Edward IV does or is that too um, simplistic? I think it might be too simplistic um, but I do take, I take your point uh, that there is of course a, a massive visual element to kingship um, but you know there's this fame I suppose we're we talking maybe about this famous moment at the end of Henry VI's life when he's been paraded through London exactly. in a sort of tatty old blue gown yes. Uh, which actually he's wearing because it, it, it was a it fits with the Christian calendar. It was a period of mourning, um, but that's not what struck everyone who saw him shambling through London, a sort of broken old simpleton in the, in this, this old blue bit of rags. While Edward the Fourth, who's been out hanging around in Burgundy, has imported the kind of finest, grandest sort of early Renaissance kind of uh, ducal royal style, is is uh, couldn't couldn't look more more different from. From Henry the Sixth, yeah, there is a, an element to which you've got to look the part, but then you know we've got to be careful with that because Richard the Second looked the part of a king, uh, and it did him no good whatsoever. Now, in sort of the run-up to Edward the Fourth, of course, the sort of great example of someone who is never king is his father, Richard, Duke R- of York, Richard yeah. Duke of York. You're giving our own interpretation here as well, aren't you? In that you're arguing that actually he didn't really have. Uh, intentions to be king until quite late. You said in fifteen, in fourteen fifty one, his desire to force the, his claim to the crown was precisely nil. And actually, you don't think he really hoped to be king until September fourteen sixty. Um, so, in other words, what you're painting is a picture of it. Not again, not this being this two sort of rival clans trying to get the throne during this period. It's almost accidental. It's almost that because of Margaret's power, Margaret of Anjou's power, who's Henry VI's wife during this period, with whom he um, is on unfavourable terms, that he's forced into this position of trying to demand the, the throne. Yeah, and it goes back to what we were saying about uh, Richard's son, Edward. You know, so we're, we're talking about the moment when Richard, Duke of York, goes from um, the man, probably of preeminent royal blood, which he interprets as meaning he should have the primary role in government during the king's incapacity or... Uh, incompetence um, to saying actually I'm the rightful king and finding all sorts of suspicious room all sorts of reasons to, to argue through genealogy and, and, and family trees and whatnot why this should be the case um, what causes that and it's, it's, it's much the same as when we were talking about Edward IV uh, 
you know, you look at the decision that has to be made in 1460. In his pursuit of this role as chief counsellor, as protector, as, uh, as the sort of preeminent noble in the country, Richard Duke of York, who is not an especially um, uh, subtle or um, uh, intelligent politician, bit of a sort of hard nose. Act first, think later, politician, um, has alienated and upset Queen Margaret, wife of Henry VI, and more importantly, guardian of uh, Henry VI's heir, Prince Edward, has alienated her so much that there is now no chance whatsoever of any reconciliation ever, ever, ever. The best Richard Duke of York can hope for is exile, impoverishment, and attainder. Uh, more likely, she'll get him and he'll be dead, right? What do you do? What do you do in that situation? There's only one choice left. There's only one choice left. Well, I've exhausted all my options. Um, it's, it's like, you know, you're paying for you're just all in now. There's, um, and again, the consequences of that decision are completely disastrous. Completely disastrous. So Richard Duke of York saying, OK, you know what? I'm the king. With, with really no grounds to say so whatsoever. Uh, but comes back and starts this new phase of the war in which he's turned into um, a dynastic conflict where, where previously, until 1460, it had been a political conflict. Uh, turns it into this dynastic conflict. I mean, disastrous, absolutely disastrous and the, the effects of, of it have felt for nearly 30 years. Um, but again, the decision, you look at the decision-making, people don't make decisions with the benefit of hindsight. They make them in desperation with partial knowledge and that, I think, explains a lot about Richard Duke of York. He's in this situation because of Margaret of Anjou, which brings our attention to the idea of female power in the mm. 15th century. You quote Buckingham at one point as saying, it's not the business of women but of men to govern kingdoms, and yet um, we've got some of the most powerful women in medieval history lined up in this period. Um, I suppose, what do you think is the role of, of, of women in 15th century dynastic politics? That's an interesting question. Um, the, what is the role of them in dynastic politics? Well, there's one very sort of obvious role, which is to produce children, uh, and lots of them, ideally. Um, although too many actually can turn into disaster, like Cecilia Neville. Uh, but, the, you know, the, it is interesting. You look at people like Margaret Beaufort, Margaret of Anjou, um, to an extent, I suppose, Elizabeth Woodville. Uh, they can reach out almost to full power. You know, Margaret Bonchu basically wants to be regent. Um, but the ideas of the age just won't permit it. And one of the big problems of wanting to be a, a woman wanting to be regent at a time of massive civil war is that no, one's, no one will follow a woman into battle. So it becomes impossible. That's the real problem for Margaret Bonchu. I saw Joan of Arc. Unless you're Joan of Arc, of course, but even when you, even then you have to have a pudding bowl haircut and uh, dress like a man, right? And you end up being burned at the stake, a heresy. So it is difficult. Um, Helen Castle Shewolves is, is all of this in the chapter on Margaret of Anjou. The chapters on Margaret of Anjou are, are very good. But I think that, that sort of sums up the problem, you know. You can get almost there, but there are some sort of fundamental ways in which uh, society and politics are structured in the 15th century. It means uh, 
it's going to be a good hundred years before you have a Mary the First or Elizabeth the First. And even then, you know, Elizabeth the First has enough problems with it, doesn't she? Yes, and it, it's, it is quite frustrating. You quote a chronicler about Margaret of Anjou saying she's, and I, I like this, more wittier than the king. It would be nice, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there's nothing that can be done about it. Um, let's, let's go towards the end of your period then, um, and the great contested figure of Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who becomes Richard III. And I thought you were, well, either one might say fair or, or possibly even flattering about him. So you talk about him being uh, a trusted military man, you talk about, you quote a German visitor saying he had a great heart, his sharp wit, his courage, his concern with justice. This is all very well documented. Um, in your book, and yet another uh, elsewhere, you do call him usurper, and in this sort of wonderfully under, um, understated line, say his attitude towards his members of his family had proven to be anything but sentimental. Do you think this leaves us with a sort of dissonant picture of Richard III? Yeah, absolutely. And this hysterical desire that people have for reasons best known to themselves, either to exonerate him and paint him as a saint or to uh, villainise him and make him a sort of a demon person. It's just, it's just so unhelpful to understanding this period. Um, because if you, if you follow the, 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 the sort of arc of Richard III's very interesting life, what you do have is a very loyal younger brother, uh, a capable, um, if, in perhaps even a, a, a very capable um, military leader and a soldier, you know, a fixer, a real fixer, right, and a hard, hard man um, who's there, loyal to his brother and, and does all the right things and ends up in another one of these situations, like his father, like his brother, having to make difficult decisions very quickly that have disastrous consequences. Uh, his decision to use up the throne leads inevitably to the decision um, to you know, whack the princes in the tower. Okay, whoever did it, whoever did it, leads more or less directly to Bosworth. Um, this sort of terrible period of three years of, con of uh, probably unintended and absolutely disastrous consequences drags Richard down from a, a previous career of a sort of great loyalty and, um, and, and capability. That's life, it's complicated. Um, but people don't want to look at Richard III in those ways, there seems, as I said, to be this desire either to exonerate him or to um, or to heap blame and kind of ordure on him. Uh, it's just so unhelpful and pointless. And again, what I tried to do with with Richard the Richard Duke Gloucester, Richard the Third, is see him as he was seen. A lot of this book is about peeling away all the kind of um, myths, legends. Um, Framings of the Wars of the Roses, which, which are the assumptions that we, we make before we even go into the period. Uh, and one, one way to do it is Richard III. Um, and I hope I've sort of done some sort of justice. A couple more things. Um, at one point you talk about Henry VI as being blandly pious, which exactly produced that reaction in me, a sight and take of breath. And I wondered about what the place of faith is in this book and in your reading of this period. Yes, that is kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, blandly pious Henry VI. From what we know of Henry VI, 
and bearing in mind that this may be skewed by the fact that one of the best personal sources, uh, best sources describing his personality was written by his confessor, John Blackman. Um, there was a sort of, in this retreat from politics and this retreat from the realities of the difficult world in which he was expected to be a king, he found solace in um, religious devotion in a way that hadn't really been seen in a king since Henry III. You know, Henry III, the great builder of, of Westminster Abbey, and um, again, another, another king who became, who came to the throne very young uh, and just seemed to be, reigned a long time, was ground down by the reality of governing at a very difficult, at a very difficult time. Uh, they shared, of course, the experience of losing great chunks of France during their reigns. Uh, and seemed to sort of retreat at moments of great crisis. You know, when, when Henry III, when there was a crisis on Henry III, he'd just, he'd just sort of go off to East Anglia and do a tour of his favourite shrines. You know, and Henry VI does, does much the same thing, you know. He'd sort of much rather just retreat into these plans for King's College, Cambridge, or Eton, or his, his sort of plans for his tomb, or, or just, just religiosity, rather than the difficult front line of politics. What is the place of religion in the spirit? Well, it's hard to say because it's, it's hard to see without the comparison of, uh, of what's going to happen in the 16th century, you know. Uh, what, I, what I've tried to do towards the end of the book is, is uh, and actually the beginning of the book when we have um, the execution of Margaret Paul, who is sort of the last big figure from the age of the quote-unquote Wars of the Roses, uh, and is also on the wrong side of the religious divide as far as Henry VIII is concerned. Well, that's a, that's a double whammy and, uh, and poor old Margaret Paul gets it quite literally in the neck for being, being well, actually in the shoulder blades. Um, uh, is hacked to death with an axe, let's not be cryptic or metaphorical, uh, for being on the wrong side of, of two still quite important arguments. Um, the six, so one of the reasons for taking this story up to the 16th century was to, was to just include that moment when the politics of dynastic, uh, the politics of dynasty or of um, uh, of his, of history, if you like, of royal history, start to fade, and the politics of religion start to rise and matter far more. I'm not arguing, you know. I know I said earlier in this reign that the Wars of the Roses, the idea of the Wars of the Roses, is still important in Elizabeth's reign. It is, but in a sense. Uh, it's been fixed. It's been decided and settled by the time you get to Elizabeth's reign. No one's fighting because they think they have a bit more royal blood than your next person. Uh, on those, for those reasons alone, it's, it's become a matter of, of religious faith by that point. And so I thought that's another reason I thought it was important to extend the period of this book out to the 16th century because then you then see, okay, well, why did all this stuff just stop? And what became important afterwards? And lastly, you do at one point describe this as this ruthless, pitiless age. Do you think that's how we should characterise the 15th century? Certainly ruthless, no doubt about that. Um, I mean, look at, look at what happens within the House of York. You know, Edward IV executing his own brother, supposedly drowned in, in Malmsey wine. Richard III usurping his nephew, nephews, who end up dead in the tower. Um, 
the the pursuit of the of the Yorkists then under the Tudors, the ruthless pursuit, even under Henry VIII of the Delapoles, who really so far from having any claim to the well, they're about as far as the Tudors from having any real claim to the, <laughs> the throne, right? You know, that's so ruthless, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Uh, Warwick the Kingmaker just flipping sides and 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 in the in the single-minded pursuit of power. Uh, and pitiless as well. I mean, I think that that, that idea follows the the, the, ho- the horror, the horror. But look at Towton. Twenty-eight thousand people supposedly die in a single day. And even if that figure's exaggerated, all you've got to do is go and look through the archaeological reports from Towton and see physically. I think there's a picture in the book of one of Towton twenty-five, the skull of a man who's obviously been hit in the face with an axe or something. Uh, so forget Tyrion Lannister, right, with his little scar down his cheek. For Game of Thrones watchers, uh, I mean, this is a face that has been cleaved in half so badly you could probably stick your hand in, right? Yeah. Um, so pitiless, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I mean, this one, this is a time of, of very unpleasant and brutal warfare. That was Dan Jones speaking to Susanna Lipscomb. Dan's book, The Hollow Crown is out now, published by Faber & Faber in the UK. In the US, it will be published in October by Viking Adult under the title The Wars of the Roses, The Fall of the Plantagenets and The Rise of the Tudors. Dan Jones has also written the cover feature for our October issue, which is on sale now. Also in this issue, you'll find articles on Joan of Arc, the start of the Second World War, Scotland before the Union, and the history of smiling. You can get hold of our October issue now in all good newsagents or as a digital edition. And both Dan and Susanna are speaking at this year's BBC History magazine, History Weekend, taking place in October in Malmesbury. Tickets are still available for some talks, and if you'd like to find out more or book tickets, please visit historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. 19th century serial killer Jack the Ripper was a 23-year-old Polish immigrant, a self-confessed armchair historian has claimed. Russell Edwards believes Aaron Kosminski who died in an asylum, was definitely, categorically and absolutely the man behind the mass murders in 1888 in London's East End. In his new book, Naming Jack the Ripper, Edwards says a blood-stained shawl he bought in 2007 at an auction in Bury St Edmunds, Suffolk, contains DNA evidence that led him to the killer. Jack the Ripper slashed and mutilated at least five women within just a few weeks in 1888. The identity of the killer has remained a mystery. 
In other news, one of two British explorer ships led by Sir John Franklin that vanished in the Arctic more than 160 years ago has been found. Canada's Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, said it was unclear which ship had been found, but that photo evidence confirmed it was one of them, BBC News reports. Franklin led the two ships and 129 men in 1845 to chart the Northwest Passage in the Canadian Arctic. The expedition's disappearance shortly after became one of the great mysteries of the age of Victorian exploration. Meanwhile, a hidden prehistoric complex has been discovered at Stonehenge. Using advanced metal detectors and ground-penetrating radar, investigators from Birmingham and Bradford universities and from the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute in Vienna have uncovered 17 previously unknown wood and stone temples and shrines. Most of the monuments, which are around 6,000 years old, are invisible to the naked eye. The discovery will feature in a two-part special BBC2 documentary, Operation Stonehenge, What Lies Beneath, being shown tonight, Thursday the 11th of September. Thanks, Emma. Well, that's almost all for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be speaking to Charles Spencer about the regicides of Charles I and finding out more about the Chartist movement. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 